Welcome to Charity Chat, I'm your host Samuel Davies. In this episode we speak with Sarah Brooke, founder and CEO of the Sparkle Foundation. We speak about Sarah's personal journey and what has led her to found and run a development charity. We speak about some of the challenges that that charity, the Sparkle Foundation, has faced, especially throughout the COVID pandemic, and how they've overcome them and also how they go on to engage support from there. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good. Through their fundraising platform, they offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners, and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. So without further ado, here is Sarah Brooke speaking with me about holistic development. I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Brooke, founder and CEO of the Sparkle Foundation. Sarah, welcome to Charity Chat. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciated. It's our pleasure. Maybe if we can start by talking a little bit about you. What's your background and what's led you to where you are today, founder and CEO of the Sparkle Foundation? Um, it's quite a story, so I will definitely give you an abbreviated um, version. But in a long story short, uh, when I was 18, closed my eyes, pointed at a map, and my finger landed on Malawi. Um, I remember well shouting down to my parents, oh, yeah, I am off to go to Malawi. And he said, where's that? I was like, in Africa. So off I went um, for three months to volunteer um, over in a charity there. I just did a basic Google research and managed to find a friend that knew someone over there. And while I was there, I ate too much of the local food. Uh, for those who've been to Africa and have tried the staple meal in Malawi and Sima, it's called different things across Africa, but it's the maize meal. Mm. And I was having it breakfast, lunch and dinner with the lady that I was staying with. And unfortunately, I was too polite to say, I'm not sure if this is agreeing with me. Uh, fast forward six weeks later, I got a twist in my bowel. So I was rushed to the hospital unconscious. Um, the one doctor there told my friend that they need to operate. But there was a 96% chance of HIV because they had no sterile equipment and only one doctor. And he said, I've never done the surgery before, but I can give it a go. No. Um, fortunately, I was unconscious. So my friend said, what's the other choice? They said, go to a private hospital two hours away, but she might die before she gets there. Anyway, he took that chance. He flagged down a car on the side of the road, took me to the hospital, had the surgery, spent three and a half weeks there. And he came to visit and said, Sarah, when we went to the local hospital, there were maybe 300 people waiting in the queue to see the one doctor. And when they saw you, ultimately because of the colour of your skin, mm. they allowed you to be seen first and you were the doctor for two and a half hours. And when you came out, some of the people in the queue who were children had died. Oh and I mean, it was just that moment that changed my entire life forever. Mm. And I was mm. like, that's it. The colour of my skin should never dictate whether anyone lives or dies. I have to do something to help. So that was sort of the moment Sparkle, so to speak, was born. And I was like, I want to make a difference to at least one child's life. Mm. Um, raised money in the UK at university, went back at 21, built 
a small nursery school in the community and honestly walked away thinking, oh, I've done my bit now. I've helped. Um, I'll go and live my nice life. Um, and for those involved in the child sector, they'll know it doesn't quite work like that. Um, went back a year later, everything had been taken. No iron sheets, uh, no toys, no children. Made a very desperate phone call home and said, oh, this is what's happened. And my family were like, Sarah, that's Africa. That's corruption. And I was like, actually, that's a 21-year-old who had no knowledge of the charity sector, went and built something with my Western views of what I thought was best and didn't even consider sustainability. I've got this completely wrong. I need to do something to correct this. Um, So, yeah, I went to volunteer at 13 different charities around the world and had a year of experience and then came back and thought, actually, I want to create a different model, more of a holistic one that's community driven. Mm. Um, went and lived on the ground in Malawi, we worked with the people and yeah, we said, this is what we want to do. So moved to Dubai because the tax-free salary meant I could fund it. And we started growing and growing and growing. And as of March this year, we just hit 15,000 lives that we've impacted. So um, wow. it's been a real journey um, and one that I am very grateful to be on. Um, but when you talk about background, majority sparkle's been my life since I was 18. I've done corporate jobs, building CSR programs along the way, motivational speaking. I've worked in as a journalist, my background in psychology, but they've all just been um, needs to an end, really, to fund sparkle. So, yeah, sorry, not such a small version, but at least gives a bit of background. What, what a compelling story, though. And I guess, I mean, one of the things that springs to mind, and I, I suppose... It sounds like you you were very mindful of this, but you know there is that when it comes to um, kind of development and in, international development projects, things like there is that issue, isn't there, of kind of the white savior complex that we've seen in various guises, and I suppose you know kind of well-meaning that where you've got you know white person going in as a kind of this white savior to help the poor Africans, and I guess there's there's a very different view now, isn't there, in terms of how do you actually, and you mentioned it in how you were kind of approached it when you went back at 21. And, and presumably that's at the heart of what Sparkle Foundation's about, is it? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think you make a decision one way or the other, you either accept you've made a mistake and learn from it, or you end up just walking away. And I fell very much victim of that whole white savior thing. I thought I knew what was best. And I also then realized that there's many charities, the average life expectancy of a charity in Malawi is two years. People oh, wow. come in, they do something, and then it ends up corruption, different things and walk away and mm. feel, oh, it's the country. But actually it's not. If you don't put the fundamentals in place, you don't work with the community. Who am I to go in? I'm not Malawian and say, this mm. is what I think is best. So um, albeit it was difficult and it was biggest one of the biggest mistakes I ever made it was also the biggest lesson I ever learned and I don't believe had we not gone through that Sparkle would not be in the position it is today and it's been able to be a bit of a platform for us to now advise other organizations about what not to do Um, and it was hard because it's also very personal to me but it like you said it's now at the center and the core of what Sparkle does what it does mean and I think you know we've turned down I'd say hundreds of thousands of pounds now worth of donations over the last five or six years, because we won't be dictated to by grant providers or by Mm. donors about what they think is best. This is a community driven thing. And actually it's got to be led by them, which means we will not be held almost at gunpoint of you need to deliver X by Y because Mm. you can't, anyone that says you can change your life in a year, I'd love to see it, but this is a mindset change that we're working together collaboratively with and, 
I have to be behind the scenes now, just providing the resource and the platform and it's changing the narrative. Now I'm tired of hearing all Malawi's known or even Africa as poverty and this. We've seen the pictures all too long now. Actually, mm. it's I've learned more than I've been able to give truthfully in the 14 years I've been in the country. So um, it's just changing that. And can you shed some light on what it is that has kind of made it successful? How do you engage a community? How do you engage individuals on the ground who know that community? How do you go about it? Um, I think, first of all, from a holistic approach, when we started, we went with, okay, let's just do education. And we started and realized, you know, by 10 o'clock, most of our children were falling asleep. Um, and that's like, okay, they're hungry. So then we brought in the feeding program. Then we realized, okay, we're losing on average a child a month from a preventative disease. So let's bring in medical support. So that's when we then had those three. And then when it came to sort of farming season or there was any problems at home or death, the children didn't attend. So then it's like, okay, we need to work with the community and the parents. And then once we realized that most of the parents hadn't been educated themselves and didn't really value education, we then started looking at entrepreneurship, women's groups, how we can get them involved. Because I think any parent around the world ultimately has the same end goal. They want the best for their mm, children, most. Absolutely. And actually we found that if we provide them with an income or a way of getting a job, it actually made our life a lot easier as well and mm. lifted up the child. So we did that. And then um, the final sort of icing on the cake is in 2017, I actually fainted in Malawi, unfortunately, and had a traumatic uh, brain injury. That um, oh, it was, I was announced dead in Malawi, but long story short, I was airlifted to South Africa and put in a coma for six months. Um, but well, I was three weeks in the coma, but six months recovery. But when I came out, um, basically I realized the charity was not sustainable and I'd been the chief fundraiser for all those years. So we then looked at partnerships and we started looking at how can we bridge the gap between corporates and the charity sector and also the community. And I think it was building those relationships that has been sort of the defining moment for Sparkle because, you know, most of our staff have been with me since I was 18. They've come from not being able to read or write in the community and they're now matrons, they're now qualified, they've got university degrees. This has been a real homegrown effort um, and now we're in 17 villages and we're planning to replicate across the entirety of the country and then into other countries. And what we find why charities are now approaching us almost as a blueprint for um, community model is that because we work in so many different areas, we look at everything. And you've heard the saying, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. We are actually looking at every single area and making sure that entire community can stand on its own two feet um, without kind of just moving on to something else and we're not dictated by great you know we could have fed a million people by now but do I honestly believe that that would change the GDP of a country no mm. um, so that's why we're really trying to work with key stakeholders and let the people you know drive this project forward and do it the way they want and I just provide the resource and connect the dots with the people who can help. your work in Malawi been affected by and evolved because of the COVID pandemic? Well at the start of 2020 we were just ready to scale so basically we could have 
we registered officially in the UK in 2015 and we spent five years collecting all of the data. We didn't want to scale without having a really robust ME system in place. Mm. So we got all the data, we found what the need was and we're like, okay, let's go. And then the pandemic hit and we're like, okay, maybe this is not now a wise decision to double our budget. So in a strange situation, our fundraising had always been word of mouth. We've never ever had to ask for money. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to speak um, 200 events, I think, around the world and people hear the story and then want to get involved. The pandemic changed that because obviously suddenly I was in lockdown and couldn't go out. Um, and we'd never really done online fundraising or digital campaigns before. So we had to change our whole approach. And Sparkle actually grew um, in the pandemic. Can you believe it? But Number one being the furlough scheme in the UK. Uh, we had at one point over 150 volunteers, 22% of which have never returned back to their jobs because what they found that working with Sparkle gave them a whole other purpose um, in life, which was amazing. You know, to hear the stories, the other side of it, it's great that we're helping people in Malawi, but then to hear volunteers that have said, we've helped them through the lockdown with mental health and we've given them a reason um, so we grew in terms of our volunteers and then we also just adapted our services. So our school closed, but we did homeschooling. Our ambulance service continued. Um, we did food packages um, and there were seven charities registered in Malawi that were able to continue to operate and provide emergency COVID relief. And Sparkle mm -hmm. was one of them. So um, we made a commitment right at the start that no matter what, we would not let any staff go. And we'd also would not reduce any of our services. Because as you know, it's the most vulnerable people that get affected by things like this. Absolutely. And yeah, by the British from the British public and also from our donors worldwide, we were able to maintain that promise and our donations grew, as did the people that got behind us, which for a country like Malawi that's not necessarily always heard of, mm. um, it was testimony to humankind really, I should say. It really made me feel that there's some great people out there in this world that do want to make a difference. Absolutely. And what, what kind of roles did the volunteers um, kind of came to you in, in 2020? What kind of roles did they have working remotely? So uh, the big thing that anyone that knows me, they say, oh, I'll catch anyone in the net because my, my big thing is that everyone can make a difference regardless. So our youngest person that came was a four year old girl. Uh, really? she, oh, wow. when, obviously, yeah, when some of the lockdown restrictions lifted, she climbed Snowden um, to raise money for girls education. And she did a big campaign and then she did a Skype call um, with well, it's teams, actually teams call with the, the children in Malawi so she could see exactly where her money had gone. Um, we have an 83 year old gentleman in Saudi Arabia who was knitting hats for our children in a wheelchair uh, for the kids I in will. the winter. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have literally had people helping with marketing campaigns, people doing Google ads. We've had finance and accountants. There is not a single skill we've had to ever turn anyone away. Um, I mean, in we people joke, but we're sort of the matchmaking in the you know twentieth century for connecting people with their purpose because yeah. we get people to send their CVs um, and also have an interview with them just to understand you know, you're much more than your CV mm. and who you are as your day-to-day -day job and then we say right what hours have you got that you can commit and then we match you with either one of our projects or to mentor one of our um, beneficiaries in Malawi and it's just grown I think we've got at the minute 180 volunteers in 15 different countries that's um, incredible isn't it so yeah but it's a testimony to the human 
race to be honest with you in that sense because I think the pandemic if it taught us anything is that no one is um no matter how much money you've got um your health is a priority and for the first time certainly I think for people in the UK we were able to see what it go it means to go without and to not have things readily at our disposal so I hope it ignited a, okay there's people living like this every single day so what can we do to help and did did the the people that you're working with in Malawi were they badly affected by COVID? Was it the same kind of scenes that we saw here in the UK? It was a delayed onset, definitely. They were sort of, well, why is the UK panicking so much? And then eventually, when it did catch up with them, hmm. um, we lost thirty eight people within a month, um, oh. which was really difficult. And we then were reliant on volunteers, counselling. Uh, we hmm. had to use people from Samaritans to provide online support um, to Malawi, um, which was really tough. But what actually, for countries like Malawi, what happened with the pandemic is unfortunately when it hit, the most vulnerable were almost affected immediately. Anyone that had any underlying health conditions, um, either the cases worsened or they unfortunately died. Mm. And then it suddenly then just almost peaked and then went back to normal. Um, and at the moment, having just come back from Malawi, you would never even think covid um, the impact of COVID has definitely not been the number of deaths. It's actually been the loss of jobs and right. the inflation worldwide. Mm. Um, the the next two years, I don't know if you saw from the World Economic uh, Forum that took place earlier this year, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa will be the worst affected. I mean, we're expecting a famine, a fuel and a financial crisis over the next two years. Um, so, yeah, we're going to really have our work cut out Um and we're starting to see that already now. When you even just look at things like energy bills, inflation, it's um, all interlinked with almost the most vulnerable communities in the world as well. And what what's that knowledge doing to to you and your your colleagues in terms of your strategic thinking? Is it making you think you need to keep things kind of closed down and, and kind of protect what you're doing, or are you thinking you need to expand to reach more people that are going to be affected by all of these different things? It's a two-sided coin, really, isn't it? I mean, the side of me that is on the side of caution is, okay, let's manage what we can. We don't know how much, you know, the Ukraine crisis is an example. We lost 20% of our donors overnight because wow. they said we want to donate closer to home. So mm. when something like that happens, it, you know, changes things. Um, that being said, I made a commitment at the start for Spark on what I wanted to achieve, and um, we've still never not delivered on what we promised so it'll be wrong of me now even if the world around I've got to take it into consideration but it wouldn't change the direction that we want to go and the people that we've made a commitment to that we want to help we're not going to stop and we replicated at the start of the year to another site we plan to have another one by this time next year um, and unless there was really something um, that changed that I think our whole fundraising approach has been what's changed the way that I'm now able to think because a lot of our money is generated either through businesses in country, through mm. corporate partnerships, rather than relying on one space of income, one source yeah. of income, sorry. So that allows you to be a bit more flexible with growth mm. because it's not putting all your eggs into one basket, so to speak. Is awareness and action around the climate crisis having a bearing one way or the other on your work? 
Yeah, I think it, de- I mean, it definitely is. It's part of our agenda and it filters into all of our programmes in some ways. I mean, if you look at Malawi as a country, the flooding that's been experienced sort of in the last couple of months is definitely as a knock-on effect. Yeah. Um, the challenge you face is in countries like Malawi, people are living sort of day by day because things are so, you know, survival. They don't have the luxury of thinking what's for next year. Um, so when you think about things like climate change, it's very difficult to get those messaging across that this is going to have happened. It may not affect you in your lifetime. Maybe small ways it is. Your house, you know, could end up falling and collapsing because of the floods that come. Mm-hmm. But actually for your children, this is going to be a huge problem that will mean, you know, it's going to be make or break for them. And that's what we're really finding a challenge at the moment of how, you know, how do you make it real? As an example with Sparkle, we have a day a year where the parents can come in and be students and they okay. can actually experience what it's like for their children. And afterwards they are like, wow, okay, we, you know, our attendance shot up by from 78% to 92% just from that single activity. Mm. We're now trying to think and brainstorm of how can we do that in terms of climate? Because if parents can taste almost or feel it, what it could be like in years to come, they may be more engaged within it um changes are being made on a governmental level um but it's a long way to go and my big thing is collaboration so i'm really trying to work with other charities um it's one of my pet peeves in the sector is that many businesses come together and share resource and share thoughts but the charity sector because we're all kind of challenging each other for money Mm -hmm. there's not necessarily covid changed that but there hasn't always been that let's work together and the end day we all have the same end goal we want to all make a difference so I believe if we came together more, we could address things like this at a much bigger level. Absolutely. Well, I, I hope that, you know, we know that we've got a lot of charities listening to the podcast. I hope that um, anyone listening to this that, and I'm sure a lot of people will be moved by what you've you've talked about, Sarah, will we'll maybe reach out and offer some support or indeed volunteers. Um, if, uh, if there are people listening who might be able to volunteer or f- help fund what you're doing, then that would be good too, wouldn't it? Where does the Sparkle Foundation aim to go from here? So our plan is to have at least another four, well, four sparkles in Malawi, so to speak. So what our end goal is that we're a best practice blueprint model. Uh, we're sort of a franchise going to be. So what I don't want to happen is people go through all the trials and tribulations that I've had to do to set up a charity. Mm. So if people have got an interest, whether it be India, China, you know, Thailand, wherever it is, they come to us, they understand our model and learn about it, join us and then create another sparkle in that country. Um, at the moment, we're probably receiving sort of between 10 to 12 proposals a month in different countries for wow. where to take the model. And mm-hmm. that is purely just down to our data that we've been able to see not only what people's return on investment is, but it's, you know, I could tell you right now, Mary, age three, when she last had a meal. And for most charities our size, they haven't got that level of reporting. Mm-hmm. And our social media every day is being done live from the ground in Malawi. We've got nothing to hide. We want to be fully transparent and we've made mistakes and we own them. Um, So I think for us, it's about creating a model that can be used across the sector in general um, and having many sparkles, I think predominantly across Africa. Uh, South Africa looks like um, it's favourable to be our next um, place. We've had strong interest from there as well as Kenya. Um, So sort of the next five years, that's definitely where we will move towards. But um, for us, we will only follow the need. We won't follow the money. So um, it's a difficult question for me to say. It depends what happens with the world around us of where we'll go. And 
um, getting more and more people involved. We don't believe the world needs another charity. And unfortunately, on the back of the pandemic, I think the latest stats said 40% of small charities will close rather than people's hard work going to waste. We'd rather acquire them and take them on and put them under the sparkle umbrella and make sure that people's hard work doesn't go to waste. Um, so that's sort of where we sit at the moment. Um, but we're still relatively small, you know, you know, £250,000 a year charity. It's, it's not, we've got big dreams and we've got amazing people behind us. Um, but it's certainly an uphill battle, but one we're prepared to take on and see the impact that we can make. the podcast we're talking on charity chat podcast our intention is to kind of give free learnings and guidance to people but i'm just interested in your learnings and, and you know the guidance that you've had because from from you know you going out to malawi and then kind of experiencing it and then deciding to do something and as you say kind of making mistakes along the way but where you've got to now how have you how have you learned these lessons have you had kind of good people around you that have been helpful in in giving you these things is it a case of kind of experiencing firsthand and then learning quickly that way what what's kind of given you this this knowledge and expertise over the years uh, I still got a lot to learn so I wouldn't feel that I'm the expert by any means but uh, I think failures have been a huge um, factor I, I just met, got got it wrong so many times and I think when you get it wrong you make a decision do you learn from it as I said at the start exposure and I'm not taking no for an answer. I mean, I put myself in very difficult positions where, you know, I was sending your CV around at 19 to work in the charity sector. I got many back about being a tea girl or going to do scanning of things that, that wasn't for me. So I mm. put myself on a plane. I managed to work to get money to go and turned up at the building and said, here I am. You've got a pair of resources here. Make <laughs> it happen. And I think... I've had to knock on many doors. I've got many rejections, but mm. you just keep going and um, you've got to keep bouncing back. I mean, my health probably has suffered. There's a huge consequence of it, but there's that resilience. I've had so many people um, tell me, including, you know, I went to the UK government before we start up Sparkle and said, this is what I want to do. And they said, it's never going to happen. Um, and I think that drive of, okay, let's make this happen has been mm. sort of the fuel that I've needed um, to push it forward and yeah people have come along the way and a part of the journey um, but we're trying to do something different and I think when you do do something different and people understand it and you're honest I think that has been the biggest thing um, and because I'm a face a face of the charity is not always some of the larger organizations people don't really know um, and that works twofold truthfully for me because if you were to donate money to me today that's not only my reputation but it's also I have an accountability that I want to make sure that as someone who donated as a child myself, that that full money goes where it's intended to. Mm. Um, so regardless of how big Sparkle grows, we've always wanted to maintain our values. And I think I've been very, very fortunate for people that I've met on the ground in Malawi and certainly our country director who 28 years of age has been with us six years has started sort of as admin and has worked her way up. This is now a story of two of us from two very different worlds and both share the same mission that, we want to make an impact and um, we just hope we can grow and get as many people as possible to, so to speak, join the Sparkle movement because it, the reward is massive and to be able to wake up every day, to be able to make a difference to someone's life, it's it, you can't, can never be more grateful, certainly for me, to have found my purpose at such a young age. So there's no ever question about whether or not I continue. 
um, and just keep learning as we go along. And where can people find out more about the Sparkle Foundation and how they can support it? Uh, social media, so at the dot sparkle dot foundation um, for Instagram, and then if you Sparkle Foundation Malawi on Facebook, um, our website sparklefoundation.org. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, we're posting it daily on social media. Um, our website can get us on email. One of the things as our sort of USP is Sparkle is that we promise we will get back to everybody um, that contacts us. We don't want to be that charity where emails get lost if people want to help. We will find a way. So if you are wanting to volunteer, um, rest assured, you'll be placed somewhere. Um, we do believe where there's a will, there's always a way. And just to encourage everyone to follow us on our page, um, we say everyone can make a difference just by sharing one of our posts. We had last month, I went to speak at a school and everyone shared their post. And from that, a child got sponsored and it wasn't even someone that shared the post. It was someone within their network. Right. So that just shows the power of what social media can do um so let's see sarah brooke thank you for contributing to charity chats i promise it's a pleasure thank you so much a big thank you there to sarah brooke for sharing her expertise insights and knowledge with us here on charity chat we hope to hear more from sarah in the future Many of us wouldn't have experienced the traumas that Sarah did. Even fewer of us will have used this to launch a career to support others. But one thing perhaps we can all take from Sarah's story is that trials and tribulations in our lives that we may face might also open our eyes to new ways of making a positive difference in the world and helping to prevent others having to face the same trials and tribulations. When it comes to international development work, how do we ensure that our efforts are really helping? Working with the communities that you're seeking to support, listening first and speaking later, understanding the lay of the land, the challenges, and standing firm with the communities you're working to support are crucial. Working to provide a holistic approach, either in your projects or through working with others to provide a consortium approach to help tackle the often multitude of challenges that people are facing are two strategies to consider. As Sarah spoke about, giving volunteers a chance to be useful and helpful during the pandemic helped both the volunteers and the people that the Sparkle Foundation are seeking to support. In the times that we are currently living through, charities that are able to provide this feeling to volunteers could well be doing more good, providing they harness this to meet their original goals, and potentially they could open themselves up for greater future funding from those volunteers and their networks, providing they continue to steward that support. The communities that Sarah and her team are working to support are seeing the impacts of the climate crisis. Changes are being made on a governmental level, but like so many countries, including our own, developed and developing countries, things are not moving quickly enough. We have spoken before on the podcast about the place of charities in helping to lead the way in being an example and, when possible, encouraging policymakers to quicken the pace of environmental policies. If your charity has not yet seen an impact on your beneficiaries from the climate crisis, it's time to take another hard look. 
So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good believes everyone should be able to turn the work they do into good through their fundraising platform. They offer charities a way to engage and work with small businesses, including founders, owners and sole traders who want to make an impact for charities through their sales. To find out more, please visit workforgood.co.uk. Also like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. And of course, Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.